Hi, everyone. I can see a few of you entering the, the presentation and the meeting. We'll get started sh shortly. Just going to let some of the external attendees in as well. And we'll get started on the hour. If you've just entered the meeting, please uh, put your mic on mute. That would be a big help. And for everyone, this is going to be a very interactive session. We're hoping that you're going to ask lots of questions. There is actually no presentation. We have Brad McCannell from the Rick Hansen Foundation doing the presentation and talking about his experiences as well. Hi everyone, we're going to get started shortly on the hour. We're just waiting for a few more people to enter the meeting. Hi everyone, we're going to get started shortly. Wait for a couple more minutes. Hi, everyone. If you've just joined us, if you can put your mic on mute, that would be wonderful. And we're going to get started shortly. The session is being recorded. We'll wait another minute, Brad, if that's okay. I can still see a few people time. entering the room. Whatever you need to do, I'm happy. <laughs> okay. Okay, Brad, what we'll do is um, we'll start off with some introductions <clears throat> as I let people into the meeting. 
Hi, my name is Julie Matthews. I'm the Director of Tenant Communications uh, with BGIS. As Brad has informed me, I should describe what I look like. I am a 54-year-old female, a brunette. Um, I am of mixed heritage, so I look like I have a permanent tan. And at this point, I'd also like to um, go to our land acknowledgement for myself. That's okay, and I'm going to start with the land acknowledgement. I am calling from Noelleville, Ontario, the traditional Anishinaabeg territory on lands occupied by the people's Nipissing and Dokus First Nations. I would like to honor my very close neighbors, the Dokus First Nation, which is located on the French River, which was used as a transportation corridor by the Algonquin peoples of this region. So at this point, I'm going to turn my camera off and hand it over to our main presenter, who is Brad McCannell from the Rick Hansen Foundation. And over to you, Brad. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. This is a very cool moment for us. Uh, finally in a room with people who really make the change. Um, I'd like to start by just a quick just, uh, description of myself for people unable to view a monitor. I'm a 68-year-old white male. And when I started this job six years ago, I had a full head of red hair, but uh, it's rapidly thinning and turning white as I go through this project. I'm coming to you from my home office, wearing a blue jacket, black shirt, and in the background, you might see some various certificates and awards. I identify as he slash him, and I've been a wheelchair user for 42 years, quadriplegic for 42 years, and I use a service dog on a daily basis. As I mentioned, I've been the Vice President of Access and Inclusion for the Rick Hansen Foundation for the last six years. I was brought on board specifically to create the Rick Hansen Foundation Accessibility Certification Program, which we'll talk a little bit about. But beyond that, for the 25 years before that, I was the a professional access consultant working literally around the world on everything from large public buildings to arenas, airport terminals, major events. Uh, mega projects like the 2010 Olympic and Paralympic Games here in Vancouver, all the way down to corner stores and creating accessible baggage carts. All of those projects share the same thing. And it's a commitment to understanding what meaningful access meant to their organizations, what the return on investment was when they achieved meaningful access. So for today's session, I'm going to try to help you understand what meaningful access means and can deliver and maybe help you have a better understanding of why we get all the good parking spots. I'm not going to talk a lot about the foundation itself today. Um, RickHanson.com is the place to go for that, and Rick's story is there, of course, along with all the activities of the Rick Hansen Foundation over the last 30 years. Um, but I'll just mention that our vision is to create an inclusive world where people with disabilities are living to their full potential. And for us, that begins with the built environment. You know, if you can't just jump in your car or hail a taxi or get on a bus, go downtown, hit a restaurant, maybe a pub, go get a passport, join a protest, or even just go visit a friend at their house. If you can't do those things, then you don't have full citizenship. And this is what people with disabilities experience every single day. So as an organization, we recognize that we had to, if we're going to remove barriers, we first had to undertake a study, a global study, 
to understand what the issues actually were. We looked at Australia's programs. We looked at Ireland's programs. Iceland has a remarkable accessibility program. Israel, New York. We looked all over the world to see what other people were doing in terms of trying to create that meaningful access. It revealed to us that of all the pillars of accessibility, communications, web access, transportation, employment, of all of those, the, where we could make the biggest impact was in the built environment. Because without an accessible built environment, all the other pillars couldn't thrive. The need for accessible transportation is lessened if there's no accessible destinations. And even the most robust employment equity program in the world will fail if I can't get in the building. We saw that the immediate problem was the gap between the building code and the real needs of the community of people with disabilities. And this gap is generated by a misunderstanding of who people with disabilities really are. The greatest barrier to our community, the greatest barrier to people with disabilities is now and has always been the attitudinal barrier. Preconceived notions about who people with disabilities are and what we're capable of. An example of this is we get siloed all the time as a community. You know, policymakers tend to address issues in these silos. You know, they, they, they look for solutions for poverty reduction, ways of uh, supporting the indigenous community, ways of resolving BIPOC issues, and ways of supporting the community of people with disabilities. But the great flaw in that is it doesn't recognize that people with disabilities are part of all those other groups. We aren't a separate homogenous group you can just set aside and deal with after the fact. So who are people with disabilities? Well, let's take a minute to talk about this because this is one of the key problems we have out there. Because typically in the design and construction industry and in your industry, typically people think about access as being about a few wheelchair users. And this might seem odd coming from a wheelchair user, but boy, those wheelchair guys. They have dominated the discussion since day one. Dominated the regulations, dominated the codes, dominated the entire discussion. If you ask a person on the street about disability, the first thing that pops in their head is a wheelchair. The international symbol for people with disabilities is a wheelchair. And yet we represent around 30% of the population of people with disabilities. So the problem with building codes is they have that mobility bias. And that means if you're operating under a code minimum access strategy, then, then you're missing out about 70% of the community and you're missing out about 70% of the return on investment. The focus has to include people who are deaf and hard of hearing, people with vision loss, people who are blind, people with intellectual disabilities. The whole spectrum of disabilities has to be represented in the built environment. People with disabilities are the largest minority group in the world. The World Health Organization puts us at 1.3 billion globally. It's a larger market than China, by the way. Somehow we're still considered non-market. We're not only the largest minority group in the world, but we're the only minority group that any one of you can join at any moment. Whether that's a fall down the stairs, a medical issue, a car accident, You are what we call tabs. See, we got names for you too. In our community, you're known as temporarily able-bodied. Because it doesn't matter whether you do a face plant and you end up in a wheelchair as a teenager, 
or you're 65 and you've got a hearing aid and a walker, you are going to have a disability. The only question is when and for how long. So it's not about somebody else, but you. Right now in Canada, 24% of the population reports having a significant disability. Keyword there is report. There's tens of thousands of people who don't report having a disability for all kinds of reasons. All right, let's just stay with the 24% for the moment. That number hides another number. Because for every person with a disability, there's at least one other person in their life that's also affected by having an accessible built environment. Mother, father, sister, brother, friend, lover, even if it's a paid caregiver, even if it's a paid lover, they're all affected by having a better built environment. And those people are affected in two ways. Number one, it's great if, it, if you have a built environment that's accessible to me because they love me, so they want that. But the second thing is an accessible environment, a universal environment, a barrier free environment, creates a space for them to work safely with me. If they're helping me in getting out of the bed or on the toilet or on the tub, it's safer for them. So it's not 24% of the population that's affected by this. It's 50, 60, 70. I, personally, there's more than one person in my life. So it's more like 75% of the population is affected by these issues. And then there's the silver tsunami, the older adults and seniors. And there's a couple of things about these guys. that A thousand people turn 65 every day in Canada. 240,000 people retire every year in Canada. And the thing about seniors is they don't have a disability. They have multiple disabilities. They have hearing loss combined with mobility or vision loss combined with a cognitive issue or any combination there. And it's not limited to two. My mother-in-law has three, four, actually five now that I think about it. So not only do they not or not only do they have multiple disabilities, but they are in complete denial about those disabilities. You know, you've heard it. My eyes are fine, my arms aren't long enough. Or the classic, I can hear fine if you stop mumbling. The joke in our industry is older adults and seniors do not have disabilities and we will hit you with their canes if you say they do. I gotta tell you about my mom. My mom, my darling mom, uh, I, I, she's not with us anymore, but when she was 85, she was using a walker. She couldn't go more than 50 feet without sitting down. Her vision was terrible, her hearing was worse, but she felt sorry for me because I had a disability. Well, it's not like I'm using a wheelchair, she'd say. Gosh, mom, it'd be way better if you did use a wheelchair. You know, you wouldn't have to worry about falling. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to sit down every 50 feet. You can go everywhere you want. Get, get one of those uh, scooters with the sidewalls and the windchill wipers. It will terrorize the sidewalks. My brothers and I tried to put a grab bar in our washroom. Absolutely not, she said. Mom, why? She said, well, what if somebody sees it? They'll think I'm disabled. Well, that begs two questions. Number one, mom. Who are you showering with? There's something I should know here. But two, you would jeopardize your personal safety over the way things look? And the answer is an unqualified yes. She won't use what she calls a handicapped cab 
because it's got that little blue wheelchair sticker on it. People with disabilities, or, sorry, seniors with disabilities do not want to be labeled disabled. As far as they're concerned, they're not disabled, they're just getting old. So it presents a real problem for us as designers and operators of facilities, because not only now do we have to have access, real meaningful access, but it has to be invisible. It can't be segregated, it can't be separated. You can't put that little sticker on something and say, okay, if everybody with a mobility impairment go over there. It has to work for everyone. A recent Conference Board of Canada report tells us that 57% of people with disabilities who are ready, willing, and able to work, so not 57% of the whole community, because some people just can't, but 57% of the people ready, willing, and able to work are unemployed or underemployed. We asked the conference board if we had commercial and retail spaces that met RHFAC minimum levels of accessibility, just those spaces, we'll set aside everything else for the moment. What would that mean? What would that mean to the gross domestic product, for example? Well, the answer was it meant $16.8 billion was being lost every year because of the lack of access to your facilities. If I can't get in the building, I can't work. If I can't work, then we can't access that money. Now I know if there was $16.8 billion buried in the road somewhere, we would go dig it up. And if we needed special tools to do that, like the RHFAC, then we would create those tools. And if we needed training on how to use those tools, like the RHFAC training, then we would do that too, but we would not leave $16 billion in the, in the ground. So at the Rick Hansen Foundation, we've got the tools, we've got the training, and we're gonna dig it up. That's why the built environment became our focus. And this is where you come in. Because for us, employment is the holy grail. When people with disabilities have jobs, we have bank accounts, we have credit cards, and when we have bank accounts and credit cards, we can get mortgages. And when we get mortgages, we can buy houses so that builders will start building homes that work for us instead of against us. Retailers will want our business as much as anybody's business. So we become part of their business plan, part of your business plan. There's all kinds of other benefits that come from employment. It's more than just a paycheck. It's an opportunity to contribute, feel valued, you know, the social interaction, all the aspects of actually working brings a lot to the table. For, so for us, employment is the key. And we know the fastest way to create employment is to create accessible work environments in retail and commercial spaces. And we know the fastest way to do that is to get an RHFAC rating on your site so you understand the barriers that are there and who it affects. You can't fix something until you know what's there. That's our job. So how do we get there? Well, the real power of our accessibility certification program is its ability to create common language and common methodology to measure accessibility in the built environment. Right now, everybody's working with their own checklists. God, I hate checklists. They're all over the place. You can get them off the internet. You can get them every organization publishes one of some kind or another. But everybody's using individual checklists. They're working under different codes and different standards, and most of them don't know the difference between a code and a standard. 
lot of them are working for personal preference. And honestly, some of them are doing a very good job. But unfortunately, we can't measure it because everybody's doing something different. It's all anecdotal information instead of being data that we can use as an industry. The next time someone says to you, I want my building to be accessible. The next question out of your mouth has to be accessible to who? Wheelchair users? People who are deaf? People who are blind? What about intellectual disability? Who do you want it to be accessible to? And even within that, if you say I want it to be accessible to wheelchair users, okay, what wheelchair users? Are you talking about Rick Hansen, the guy who rolled around the world, literally rolled around the world? Not a, a, on a treadmill in the equal amount of the circumference of the earth. He went around the world, including the Great Wall of China. Accessible to him or accessible to me? A 68-year-old quadriplegic in a manual chair, and I look at a 1 in 12 ramp, which is code minimum, somehow accepted as the go-to ramp uh, slope. I look at that ramp and I start writing my will because going, going down that ramp is going to be really dangerous. And that's something really important to understand. It's not going up the ramp that's the issue. It's going down the ramp that's the issue. And not even for wheelchair guys, because you know what? Often we can just ride it out. Kind of a roller coaster sometimes. But for my mom, on the top of a 1 in 12 slope on a walker, that's really daunting. So we knew that the industry needed more training. We needed the industry needed more motivation. And we knew that if we wanted a real cultural shift, it couldn't be just adding a bunch of access professionals. The goal wasn't to train a bunch of brads. We have plenty of skilled professionals working in the field right now. What we needed to do is shift the culture. We needed to get the existing working professionals like yourselves and help them understand the real issues to literally change the way you see the built environment. And if nothing else, just teach you the right questions to ask. Sometimes that's all you need to know. It's what are the right questions to ask. And that, of course, is what the RHFAC does. Our big advantage is once you see barriers for people with disabilities, once you start to identify them, you can never stop. So we can change the way you see the built environment and you will carry that flag for us forever and whether you can act on it or not is another issue, of course. That's about owners and budgets and architects and all that kind of stuff. But you'll never be able to stop seeing them. And which means you'll always be able to access the return on investment if you do it right. And we've been really successful at helping owners see the return on investment. We've rated over 1,500 sites so far. We've trained in excess of 300 people in our training course. Industry professionals, architects, planners, building inspectors, even people who swing hammers, the trades guys, they all benefit from this. They all benefit from understanding who they're building for. And now this program's rolling out nationally. We aren't just another checklist. I hate checklists. We are a carefully weighted scale that when put in the hand of a trains professional can assess virtually any environment. It's a disability lens that fits over any project, and it gives owners and operators a detailed look at the facilities from the perspective of people with disabilities. It's a tool, it's a planning tool. 
It's a way of integrating the real needs of the community into your long-term planning process to make it part of the normal design process, not something after the fact. It drives me crazy because right now what happens? Building gets designed. It gets permitted. They start pouring concrete and then they follow me and say, can we make it accessible? No, I can't. I can do what I call bolt-on access, power door, add a hearing loop, maybe a can of paint here and there. But I can't affect the core, the core building. And that's on new projects, obviously. Existing environment is a bigger challenge, admittedly. But there's so much we can do there that really, really changes the environment for people with disabilities. The other thing is we're not just looking for failures. We're not the code police. We're not coming in saying, nah, 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 you didn't do this or you should have done that. We're just identifying what's there and some of what there is going to be good. And we want to give you credit for that. We want to identify that. And if you're doing something really good, being able to share that with other operators, owners, facility guys, architects. We're here to celebrate accessibility. We're here to set aspirational goals and to recognize innovation when it's there. So we're not about just things you've done wrong, but we are about opportunity. In addition to our ability to create common language and common methodology throughout the industry, throughout the nation, by creating that standardized approach, we also have created standardized training so that everybody's looking at the same things the same way and using the same language. The other advantage that gives us is the organizations of and for people with disabilities can have direct access to the people deciding what is accessible and what's not. To literally whisper in their ear, no, maybe not literally, <laughs> but to whisper in their ear and say, hey, this is what I want you to look for from the perspective of the CNIB, or this is what I want you to look for from the perspective of a person who is deaf. Right now, everybody's working on their own checklist. Most of them are derived from the ADA somehow. And many of them are doing a really good job, but we can't measure it. So it's all a moot point. The next time someone asks you about accessibility, it has to be accessible to who? And even within the disability groups, wheelchair access, Rick or me, all those things we talked about earlier, there's conflicts between disability groups that have to be resolved. Now, for example, wheelchair users don't want carpet on anything ever. People hard of hearing want carpet on everything always. So how do you square that circle? How can you meet the needs of those two communities in your facility? Well, you need an RHFAC professional. You need an access professional. You need someone who understands the built environment. You understand, understand that specific site, that specific user group. And you have to make some calls. You have to set a target level of accessibility for your user group. And that can be tough. But you have to do that from an informed position. From our perspective, we really needed to make this cultural shift. We needed to have people who viewed the properties, how engineers and tradesmen, people, we need people who really understood accessibility and, and took it personally and understood that the return on investment was there. The vast pool of people with, uh, with disabilities who, uh, yeah, gosh, you know, 
we're watching the news lately and, and, and all we hear is people having a hard time finding employees. There's no one to hire. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. We're sitting here unemployed. So you can see how vexing that would be for us. When really the answer is to just create these more accessible environments so that we can participate, so we can be part of the economic engine and not part of the economic load. Some of you may uh, be aware of the LEAD program for sustainability, and uh, we, we mimic that in many ways. We wanted to follow their lead. We looked at what they did. They were able to take sustainability from an academic discussion in the, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s to everyday normal design building process in the new millennium. And I understand that not everybody registers with LEADS. I understand there's other great programs like BOMA Best. But what they did is, is they shifted the culture. They did that by using professional development as their way in. They did that by having a program called the LEAD Professionals, I think it was called. Literally, as part of normal professional development, architects, planners, people working in the industry could take the LEAD program. And what that did was that created that knowledge inside the actual firms. But not just at a design table. It was at the lunchroom and the water cart and in the carpool. People understood the issues in a new way. They understood the codes just don't go far enough. They just can't. It's the nature of codes. And you know what? That's right and good. It's five to seven years to change the code. I get it. You need that as an industry. You need that stability. But if you're relying on a code minimum access strategy, you're, as I said earlier, you're missing 70% of the market. It takes three things to create meaningful access. Number one, you have to know who people with disabilities are. We talked a little bit about that. The second thing you know is that to change the culture, we have to move accessibility up the design food chain. It has to be considered earlier in the process. And the third thing is we have to professionalize the delivery of accessible design. We have to support your industry with people you can rely on, accredited professionals who are working in the field. We've relied on the advocates up till now, and we've put them in an impossible position. God bless the advocates. Nothing happens without advocates. But their job is to identify the issues and the barriers. It's our job to find solutions. It's our job as designers and operators to provide those solutions. Asking them to do that without any background in the industry, without any background in construction or design, it's an impossible position. So by professionalizing the delivery of accessible design, we can give the industry accredited professionals they can rely on. I'll finish this dissertation with one of the, the elephant in the room, and it's always about cost. And so how much does it cost? Well, if you're building something new, if, you, if it's lines on a piece of paper, I'm very proud to tell you that it costs nothing. If you're trying to reach the minimum level of the RHFAC standard, our accessibility certification program, it will cost you nothing on a new build. If you want to go all the way to our gold, it might cost you maybe 1%. Now, just by way of comparison or, or, or give you a sense of the scale, if you built a brand new building, say a retail or commercial space, and you met every accessible requirement of the Ontario Building Code, 
it would reach about 40% of our scale, so it wouldn't pass. Pass on our scale 60%. But if you did that, if you built it to that level, then the cost at a new on a new construction uh, would be zero. And that's always been our feeling. We wanted to prove it. So we asked HCMA, HCMA architecture to do a study for us. And that's what it revealed. That study is available, by the way. We're happy to publish that with you and, and share it with you at any time you want. Um, the cost of the RHFAC program itself, the rating, the registry and all of that, is less than $10,000 on a, on a building, typically. I mean, it varies depending on the size. If it's an arena, it's going to be more. If it's a corner store, it's going to be less. The RHFAC breaks your facility down into eight different categories. From uh, vehicle, vehicular access, whether you're arriving in a taxi or a, a, a driving in and parking in the parking lot or even walking from the sidewalk. It talks about sanitary facilities, it talks about interior circulation, it talks about emergency egress, it talks about wayfinding, it reviews the entire building from, a, from the perspective of the user. So back to meaningful access, what's meaningful access? It's the whole building, it's the use of the whole building. It's how it works for that person. Again, what happens now? Someone will grab a checklist. They walk into their washroom and they say, okay, you got an oversized stall, check. You got grab bars, check. The paper towel dispenser is in the right spot, check. Well, how about that? I guess we have an accessible washroom. And then they walk over to the elevator and say, hey, look, it's got a light colored floor, check. Got braille beside the buttons, check. It's got a handrail, check. And they came out saying, well, we got a pretty accessible building. Well, no, you've got a half decent washroom and an okay elevator, but you haven't done the rest of the work. You have, what's the experience with the reception desk? What's the experience inside the building? Could I work there? Is that possible? Always sanitary facilities are a problem. Washrooms are always a problem. But the bigger problem for us, from our perspective, is emergency egress. You know, the building code works really hard at getting me as a person with a disability into a building. But it doesn't, it doesn't care at all about getting me out in an emergency. Next time you're in a, in a um, high rise or something or in front of an elevator, you'll see a little plaque on the wall. And it'll say, in case of fire, take stairs. Where's the little plaque that tells me what to do? There's no little plaque. What about visual fire alarms? They're not required by the code in, well, in most installations. That creates a new problem for you as an operator. Because WorkSafe, workers' compensation, won't allow you to hire a person who is deaf and work, have them work in isolation if there's no emergency uh, equipment in there. There's no uh, a visual fire alarm or no way of identifying a need to evacuate. That's a barrier to employment. That's a human rights issue. And that trumps all the codes. So understanding these things, understanding what your facility right now offers, whether that's lines on a piece of paper or an existing facility, understanding those things is really gonna be important to you moving forward, especially any of you who are uh, in, in properties regulated by the uh, federal government. And yeah, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, you know about 
what's coming under the Accessible Canada Act and requirements for reporting? Well, the RHFAC is where you start. You can't fix it unless you know it's there. You can't have a plan until you know where you're starting from. And the RHFAC does all that. There's over 300 line items in the uh, rating system itself, broken into eight categories, as I said. But as an operator, you get a summary sheet that takes all of those, all that information and gives you in one page, you just one page, you can see where your facility is at right now. Again, whether that's existing or, or uh, lines on a piece of paper. One page to see where you're weak and where you're strong. You're going to be weak in washrooms. Everybody always is. You're going to be weak in emergency egress. Everybody always is. But so many of the solutions are really simple. I'll give you a quick example. One of the things that, as people age, one of the first things that happens is you lose depth perception. So that creates anxiety. It creates falling hazards. It creates all kinds of problems for older adults and seniors, people with vision loss, people with intellectual disabilities, people on the autism spectrum. How do you fix that? Well, the fastest, easy way is a can of paint. Imagine you show standing in a hallway where the walls are white, ceilings white, floors a light color, no depth perception. But if you paint the, the baseboards a contrasting color, suddenly you've got the parallax effect, like railway tracks. Suddenly you've created depth perception for those interviewers. Suddenly you've removed that anxiety, you've removed that tripping hazard, and it was a can of paint. Let's talk about emergency egress again for a second. When you, in an emergency, if you had glow-in-the-dark photoluminescent paint on the handrails on the stair nosings, in an emergency, those things glow. So now I can get out. I can navigate in the dark, even if you lose emergency lighting. This is what happened in the World Trade Center came down. They had photoluminescent nosings and the handrails. And according to Mayor Giuliani, 200 people got out of that building that would not have got out before after they lost emergency lighting because of that can of paint. But you have to know about it before you can do it. These easy fixes are there. Now, not all of them are easy. Some of them are, are more involved, of course. But there's so many things you can do to create a giant step forward in your environment. I'm happy to dig deeper into the RHFAC and... Uh, all the things to go with that and then and we'll do some questions here in a minute i'm kind of watching the clock takes three things to create meaningful access you have to know who people with disabilities are you have to move accessibility up to design and operating food chain so consider it earlier not after the fact not as something separate and we have to professionalize the delivery so just to recap none of this is about somebody else you're all just temporarily able-bodied people. We need to push access up the food chain, and you're the key to all that. The people on this call, you're the ones that understanding this better than anybody. You have to learn to ask the right questions. And the basic question is, how will this affect people with disabilities? Because whatever you're doing will affect them. It doesn't matter whether you're buying business cards. You're going to buy the same old cards with the you know, low-contrast, tiny print. Are you going to put it in Braille? You know, you might not need to, but did you ask the question? You know, if you're, if you're the president or the HR director of HR, you probably need Braille. But, you know, you know, maybe if you're working at the airport as a baggage handler, maybe you don't. I don't know. 
But did you ask the question? When you're ordering furniture, did you order a variable height desk? When you're ordering a fridge for the staff lunchroom, is it one of those same old fridges with a freezer up top where I can't reach it, or is it one with double doors where there's access to freezer on both freezer on one side and fridge on the other, and therefore people of any height can access that fridge? Did you ask the question? That's our, our goal is to get you to ask that question in every part of your project and ask it early. And if we do that, we can change the world. We can create employment. We can normalize the delivery of accessible design and it can stop being something separate because it's part of your culture and it's part of what you do. I think I'll let well, I'll stop here and and open it up for questions. I, I realize I've gone long already. But at the bottom line is I'm prepared to get as deep as you want in the RHFAC or pursue any other, other avenues here. But at the end of the day, um, we're tossing the ball to you because you are the change makers. And yeah, you, there's going to be some pressure on you from the regulations and things are going to change on the provincial level as well as the federal level. So those of you who are not, don't have federal clients in your buildings, you're going to have the same issues because provinces are beginning to align with the Accessible Standards Canada, uh, new standards that are coming out. There won't be perfect alignment, but there'll be lots of alignment. So this is not an issue that's going away. We're here to provide a tool to help you understand the issue, to help you understand how it's really not that daunting when you start looking at it, and really how the opportunities just multiply when you put it into long-term planning. Anyway, I'll end it there. I'm happy to take any questions and uh, I'll hand it back to our host. Thank you very much, Brad. That it was wonderful. Um, so for the folks on the um, on the team's meeting, does anybody have questions? Uh, you can raise your hand and ask it directly at Brad. Oh, good. There's questions for Go Monday, ahead, Wayne. There wasn't me. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, Hello, Wayne. Hi there. I'm just uh, turning my camera on. One moment, please. <laughs> we have the technology. Oh, hi. Sorry about that. Oh, hi, my name is Wayne Perry. Um, uh, for for those with visual disabilities, I am a white 53-year-old male with rapidly receding hair, wearing a black top, and I'm a project manager with BGIS. Right. Um, I just wanted to say, Brad, thank you very much for for everything. I, as of January, I became a Rich Hansen Foundation facility certified professional. And uh, you are completely right. Uh, as far as after taking the training and doing the uh, the audits, um, you do not look at buildings the same way anymore. You will walk into an area and you'll be like, why did they do that? <laughs> and and who did they talk to? And you're uh, completely right as as well with regards to uh, just because you have an accessible washroom, you could put it at a flight at the top of a flight of stairs and you'll still check the box, but it's meaningless because no one will use it really. I've seen that exact thing. I've <laughs> but anyways, I, I, I won't uh, take long. I just want to say thank you very much. And I 
loved the training videos that you you did uh, for and uh, I particularly liked the um, when you, you were discussing uh, washrooms and thinking uh, from the perspective of someone who would be in a wheelchair and going up and washing your hands and then looking for where's the paper dispenser. Yes. I have to now grab the, the wheels of my wheelchair to go to the paper dispenser. So thank you. It's kind of a classic. Eh? And, and for wheelchair guys, it's annoying, but for people that are using canes and crushes, it's dangerous. It Wet is. Toby hands on, a, on the cane. Oops. See ya. Anyways, I'm sure there's other. Thank you. I, I appreciate that feedback, Wayne. It's it's always good to hear. You know, I, sometimes I, 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 I'm kind of in isolation here and people go look at the videos. And I always wonder if it works, so I'm, I'm pleased. <laughs> oh, it, it, it was very helpful, very helpful. Thank you very much. And a quick question, Brad, those training videos, was that part of uh, just training you take with the Rick Hansen Foundation or <clears throat> is that publicly available? Um, they're not publicly available. They're part of the RHFAC training program. Um, but we have, uh, I should probably mention, there's two programs we offer. One is uh, the RHFAC full course designed for industry professionals. The second is called Accessible Spaces 101. So some of you may have uh, an interest in universal design, the practical application of universal design, because that's what we're really all about. You know, the practical application, it, it, you know, the seven principles are wonderful and they're guiding, but when you want to talk about how it actually gets done, that's that's where we kind of come to the, to the front. But Accessible Spaces 101 is a great course for people who just want to understand a little more about universal design and that practical application of how it works. And that's available through Power Ed at Athabasca University. I didn't say that right, Athabasca University. And uh, it's an online course. I don't know how long, but it's not a, you know, it's designed for uh, for people who just have a general interest rather than industry professionals. So that's a good place to start. But the videos themselves are part of the RHFAC. And uh, if I had enough demand, I might be able to release some videos, who knows? <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll keep that in mind. We do have more questions. Over to you, Gabriella. Hi, thanks, Brad, for the information on the program. Um, I just have a question about the um, level of accessibility that you were talking about. Since um, assessors use a lot of, um, you know, discretion or perception, personal perception um, on this evaluation, how sure. do you keep a consistency across um, when you're providing those levels of accessibility? Two ways. Number one, that's why we insist that if you're going to be an RHFEC professional that you take the course and you um, and once you've passed our course, the next step before you can do it, submit an RHFAC uh, rating to the registry is to take a third party exam administered by the CSA group. And so they test your knowledge of how to use the RHFAC, how to apply it where to make those judgment calls. It is subjective in some cases. It is a, a sliding scale from one to five. You know, you take an entrance, for example, a typical entrance. If it's code, it's probably a three. If it's perfect sliding glass doors that are enormous, it's, it's a five. And if it's anything else, it's lower than that. But yes, so you have to be able to make that call. So the first step on that is to, you have to pass that third party exam. 
The second check we have on this, and this is why if you take our, our HFAC course, you can, um, you can actually audit your own facilities. And the reason for that is when you submit that to the registry, first the CSA itself reviews the, the, uh, the rating for all appropriate stuff, make sure it's all, um, all the conditions are met. But then it goes to an adjudicator who looks at the work and says, ah, well, wait a minute. You said this washroom's a five. I don't think it's a five. And, and so they'll jump on the phone and say, how did you get five here? Because the adjudicator or the rater will, will, will submit photos and even videos sometimes. And so there's those two checks on it. And that allows you to take the course and survey your own sites because we know the adjudicator and the CSA will catch any kind of, uh, you can't give us the sunshine report, in other words. You can't just tell us all the good stuff and none of the bad. Okay, great questions. Any other questions from anyone? I, I have a couple, Brad, so I, <laughs> I don't want to take up the space. <laughs> Hi, Lisa, go ahead. Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute. Most common thing heard on, on, on Zoom meetings is you're on mute. <laughs> Um, it's a great uh, talk that you give everyone, and I guess I was, um, I recently listened to a Rick Hansen talk about emergency exiting in buildings, mm -hmm. and it really, I think it's something we all need to think more about, um, and to be sensitive to the fact that for people with some disabilities that they're not able to actually uh, exit a building in an emergency, and how, um, how much of a human right that is. And I think it shows all the other types of human rights uh, that uh, that need to be we need to be very aware of. Uh, and things like areas of refuge and uh, stretcher access and wheelchairs that can go downstairs and um, and visual alarms. I, I would like to see more work done by the federal government uh, with uh, with people uh, with disabilities and just in general on that, because I think, uh, you know, when when you hear that and, and when I mention that to people that, uh, you know, people with accessibility issues get left behind uh, in, in emergencies, you know, it is really heartbreaking. Yeah, and, and, and you know, when codes eliminated the requirement for um, areas of refuge because of sprinkler systems, our whole community cringed because we know there's lots of other reasons to get out besides fire. And so that whole idea of just, and even within that, an area of refuge, yes, it has to have a fire rating, but it should also have a means of communication. It should have an AC outlet. It should be out of the path of travel and all these other things you'll find in the RHFAC. But, you know, but there's lots of, there's good solutions out there. You know, like I, 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 I you mentioned the, the wheelchairs that go up and down stairs. They're not really wheelchairs, they're the evacuation chairs. And, you know, you often see earthquake kits in, in, in the stairwells. Well, there should be another box that has a evacuation chair in it. And all, for those who don't know, all evacuation chairs, it allows a 90-pound person to take a 300-pound person down safely down a set of stairs. And for people who are trying to go upstairs because they're maybe in a basement or lower floors, there's powered ones that can go up. But having them available, even having them available, even identifying an area of refuge, you know, with signage throughout the building. I didn't even talk about wayfinding and signings, how important that is. But something as simple as a blade sign, a sign that sticks out from the wall, you know, as a, as a person on a cane or a crutch or 
or anybody with a disability looking for the, the men's room, and they have to walk all the way down the end of the hall, and they find out, no, wrong room. Well, that's just unnecessary travel, and that's really brutal. But so I, I appreciate you, your, your, the fact that you've picked up on that and uh, as, a, as a huge problem. It, uh, I'll just mention, and I'm not here speaking on behalf of or representing the um, uh, Accessible Standards Canada, but I am on the board there. And there is a task force now assigned to this exact issue. And so hopefully we'll come up with some standards and some solutions that we can all apply, um, at least federally. Uh, hopefully the provinces will align to that, but we'll see. I, I, I'm hopeful. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Great questions. Any other questions for Brad? Oh, I was either really good or really bad. I don't know. <laughs> I'm so good. There's no well, question. I'll jump in with my question. Sure. <laughs> I'll jump in with my question for you. And it has to do with nothing without us and our ability to communicate with those uh, occupants with disabilities within the building. And um, what we found in the past is sort of consultation fatigue. Oh, yeah. Um, would you have any recommendations? Because you said, you know, what, you know, accessibility for who? Yeah. And that's our question, and we don't always have the answer. Any recommendations? Okay, let me let me start by saying um, you're totally right. Right now, everybody is required in most cases to form a committee. And the idea is the committee will guide them. And But when hundreds of organizations need committees, there aren't hundreds of people within the community who can offer you the information you need. So it's a, it's a bit of a trap. So there's real fatigue out there. I can't tell you how many committees I'm on. And so it's the law of diminishing returns, right? Nothing about us without us, though it doesn't mean ask a wheelchair user or ask a person who's a person with disability. It means involve them in the process. I mean, make, put them in a decision-making position. And it doesn't mean volunteer. One of the problems we've got is we're able-bodied people who are on salary will sit in a room with us and transcribe what we say and turn that into regulations or turn that into action. But why is that happening? Why are we volunteers? You know, you, you should have a person with a disability, paid person on the committee doing that work. It's important to understand that, you know, that, that this idea that we'll just go ask somebody and all you're going to get is personal preference. All you're going to get is that person's thing for that day. And so nothing about us without us. It's important that you have to understand that it's not about just go ask somebody. It's about involve them, put them in a decision making position. You know, I get asked all the time, what's the best way to make my office accessible? The very best way is hire a person with a disability. Stop clutching your pearls and worrying about how it's going to work and how we're going to do it. Just do it. And a miracle will happen because instead of worrying about codes and regulations, your office will start becoming more accessible because it's Brad. You learn not to leave boxes in the aisle because it blocks the wheelchair. If you, if you hire a person with low vision, you'll learn not to leave the bottom drawer of the filing cabinet open because it'll trip them. So nothing about us without us. That means involve us, not ask us. That's great feedback. Thank you very much. That helps me a lot. We've been very lucky. We had um, 
our, one of our architects, she recently left us, was a person living with a disability, and she was instrumental in providing that perspective that we never had before. So. Yeah, it, it, okay. it, it's great that, question. It's that, right? it's that shift in perception, and it doesn't take much. And and as I said, once you start seeing it, you can't stop. I, I I had a really embarrassing situation with my darling wife on our 25th wedding anniversary. We're at a restaurant, and we're all googly-eyed and looking at each other and ooing and aahing, and gosh, you're beautiful. I can't believe it's been 25 years. And geez, that bar behind you isn't very accessible. And those carpets look terrible. And those seats are. Oh, sorry, honey. You just can't stop sometimes, so it's it works for us, but it might not work for you. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, great questions, everyone. Does anyone else we have else have any other questions? We have seven more minutes of Brad's time. Seven more minutes. <laughs> no other questions again. That was perfect. I love it. Huh. Well, I will start with a. Oh, here, here we go. Go ahead, Sarah. Sure, why not? Seven minutes left. Um, so, <laughs> I am part of a probably handful of people on this call right now that have been assigned a task or a job right now with the federal government, um, and we are following the CSA checklist and evaluating a a bunch of buildings within the national capital region right now. Um, so yes, I am in full agreement with you in terms of the checklist is not a, an ideal way to go about this. Um, in fact, our manager, Nick Jackson, has done um, your course and speaks fairly highly of it and has been passing down the information. Um, it's definitely something that's on our list of things to do. Um, but I guess from an overall perspective, what would you suggest in terms of guiding the federal government to maybe approach this in a different way instead of prescribing us these checklists? Um, how to approach the government in terms of educating them that this isn't the way to go? Well, in fact, that's what we've been trying to do as, as an organization. And you know, Rick is heavily involved with the government at every, every government at every level to try to adjust policy to understand that this standardized approach the RHFAC and all that it brings, that common language, common methodology, standardized training. If that's a, if that was a national program where everybody's understanding, everybody's using the same language, everybody's looking for the same things. And, and you know, we are in our third version of the RHFAC. We've been around for six years. The fourth version is coming out, I think, next spring. Not sure exactly when, but, but we're constantly evolving the program and we're evolving it from direct input from the consumers. We're evolving from direct input from the organizations. So we're constantly pushing forward on making sure we're totally inclusive here. So the answer to that is to, to policy change. You know, the, the, the thing that made LEED such a success was when, you know, in, in the case of British Columbia, when the Premier, Gordon Campbell, stepped up and said, I'm going to require that every new project that the government's involved in, that every one of them has a LEED rating. I don't care what the rating is. I just want you to look at the issue. And, you know, a lead at that time, code minimum was their bronze level. But what it did is it brought that into the design process. It brought that thinking in. And so what we're suggesting is we need the same thing. We need the federal government to require a rating 
on, on properties they're involved in that uses common language, that uses common methodology, that has standardized training. It's based on CSA, sure, but it's way beyond CSA because it's but real input from the community in real time. So that it's that policy, it's that requirement for that, and, and not a requirement for a facility operator to grab a checklist because it puts the facility operator in a very awkward position. Because number one, he's going to find things that are code violations and probably should have caught it earlier. So it doesn't make him look particularly good. But the second thing is, if you knew there were barriers, then you probably wouldn't have done it in the first place. Without the course, without that background, without that standardized training, then you don't have the perception, the perspective you need. Can you say it? You don't have the perspective you need to understand that application. You, you can't understand the urgency of, uh, and the need for emergency egress unless you understand the users. It all comes back to the users. And most checklists are mobility eccentric. CSA is still stubbornly mobility eccentric. They've gotten better. They're going to get better again. Now that uh, Accessible Standards Canada and CSA are working together, that's going to improve. But we don't have to wait for that. And not just government policy, policy within your organizations. It should be your policy. Whatever, or whatever your company, whatever your organization, should be your policy to ask that question. How will this affect people with disability? Small projects, big projects. It's that policy shift that we really need. It's that policy shift that's going to make the real change. Because when you do that, you include us. And when you include us, you're going to see the return on investment. And we, you know, I, I often joke, I want you to want Rick Hansen's money as much as you want anybody's money. That's the bottom line. Shift the policy, both in government, provincial level, municipal level, but in your organizations as well. This is not something to be left to somebody else. If you've got a checklist in your hand, then you've already missed a step. So great advice, Brad. I know, I know we've dealt a lot with the checklists. We have a lot of go government departments on the phone with us, so I'm sure the advice is uh, well heard. Um, we're all trying our hardest to do our best, and um, I think we have a lot of work ahead of us. But we, we're all, I think, very focused on the right thing. We just need to figure out the best way to get there. So that's yeah, my personal opinion. If I may, just in closing, one of the things we're very cognizant of is we don't look backwards. We don't blame people. We don't. It's not. Like, it's not that people are doing things wrong. It's we call it uninformed design. You, you just don't have the tools, and you didn't have the tools. There's nothing like the RHFAC out there anywhere else. We've attended international conferences where people have turned to us and said, "Wow, what a great idea!" We've always tried to approach it through codes and regulations, but codes and regulations they can't keep up so it, it i know you're doing your best we are a tool to help you do better that's what we are that is so good and this has been very informative i've seen a lot of the comments and we're this is going to help us make that next step forward um, in into improving what we're doing absolutely we can improve what we're doing so Brad, again, thank you so much for all of your um, great advice and discussions. 
We are on the hour. And again, thank you so much. This was extremely informative and very, very helpful. And for those of you, the recording will be ready in Teams once we're done. Um, I will work on a, a French subtitles if I can, and we will load it up onto YouTube so we can share as well, because um, I know a lot of people um, had to cancel at the last minute and could not make it today. Again, Brad, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you all. RickHanson.com, lots more stuff there. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. What a treat. This is great. Julie, thank you so much for your patience.